Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to another episode of the Lizelle Wellbeing Show. And today we are going to be taking a deep dive into the perilous world of processed food with Dr. Robert Lustig. Now, Robert has been a paediatric endocrinologist for 40 years and is one of the leading voices on how our modern diets, high in both processed foods and sugar, are damaging our metabolic health. In his latest book, Metabolical, The Lure and Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition and Modern Medicine, he makes a case that it's not so much what's in our food that counts, but what's been done to that food. We can protect our health for the long haul, he says, if we eat with two simple rules in mind, protect the liver and feed the gut. Well, we have had a really fascinating and empowering chat. And so I do hope that you enjoy the listen. If I were you, I would grab a pen and paper. I'm going to have to listen again with my notepad. There's so much here to share and learn. And I'm so looking forward to hearing your thoughts on Instagram after the show. So let's hear it from Robert. So a very warm welcome. I'm thrilled that you have joined us today. I have to say I'm an admirer of your work. I've been stalking you on social media and online for a while now. So this is a real treat. I know that we're going to have a lot in common to talk about. So welcome. Well, uh, I may have to call the cops on you then because... You know... <laughs> exactly. If you well, have thank, a strange thank you, woman, thank you but I really door. don't want to be stalked. I, you know, the message is important, but, you know, not the message. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved in this really important message, because you're working, am I right, mainly in pediatrics and brain health? Well, um, I, I am a pediatric neuroendocrinologist, so I study how the brain controls hormones and how hormones control the brain. Um, my primary passion you know, started out being growth, and I started taking care of short kids. And then the short kids got fat on me. And, <laughs> oh and so I started researching obesity back in around 1995. The hormone leptin, which is made by fat cells, goes to the brain and tells your brain, you know, you've had enough, um, was only discovered in 1994. And I had just started working at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, pediatric cancer hospital. And we had a boatload, a cadre of 
of very unfortunate children who had survived their brain tumors only to become massively obese as a result of the therapy, either the surgery or the, the tumor itself or the radiation. This is a form of obesity that's known in medicine called hypothalamic obesity because it's damage to the hypothalamus, which is the area of the brain that controls energy balance. And I had like 40 patients, you know, that were like 350 to 400 pounds, you know, you know almost what, uh, you know, 175 kilos for you. Um, and, you know, they were all normal weight when they started out until they got their tumor. So very clearly, this could not be behavior. This could not just be diet and exercise. There was something wrong. And it was up to me to try to figure out why. Well, I researched the literature, realized that there was a whole slew of uh, uh, basic science papers in rats of lesioning, you know, with an electrode, that area of the hypothalamus. And what happened was these uh, animals would secrete enormous amounts of insulin. And the insulin would drive everything they ate into fat and they would become massively obese. So I said, well, I can't fix a brain. Maybe we could stop their insulin. Maybe we could reduce their insulin release. And so there's a drug that is you know, known to endocrinologists called octreotide. It's used for other purposes, but we decided to repurpose it to block insulin. And lo and behold, patients started losing weight. But more importantly, they started exercising spontaneously. These were kids who sat on the couch, ate Doritos, and slept. These were kids who lost all um, uh, interest in life. And the reason was because that area of the brain couldn't see this hormone leptin. And leptin told their bodies that they had energy to basically engage in life. And so when we got their insulin down, they started basically living their lives again. And the patients would say, this is the first time my head hasn't been in the clouds since the tumor. And the parents would say, I got my kid back. You know, this was really remarkable. And we ultimately did show that energy expenditure improved because we got the insulin down. And so we came to realize that obesity, not just these kids, but in general, obesity is because of defective leptin signaling. And because the leptin is not working, then you basically, your brain thinks you're starving. And so what do you do? You eat more to try to fix it and you move less to try to conserve it. So the behaviors that we associate with obesity, gluttony and sloth, are actually secondary. They're manifestations of the primary problem, which is the insulin and leptin problem. And when we started applying that concept to normal, I should say normal, you know, obese adults that don't have brain tumors, we got the same effect. So we know that this notion that obesity is because of aberrant behaviors, we know this is hogwash. This is garbage. And the problem is that the public wants to believe it because, you know, ob obese people are still the last group that it, you know, that it's, uh, 
you know, shall we say, politically correct to make fun of. So I am absolutely dead set on fixing this problem at both the medical level and the societal level. And that presumably involves removing insulin from the diet or in, uh, removing the factors that cause this overload of insulin. Exactly. The, the factors that make your insulin so high. And the two that are, shall we say, you know, paranon plus in this story are refined carbohydrate and sugar. Because those are the two things it's, that make insulin go up. It, it is just that, it, I mean, the more I research and the more I write over the years, it seems so blindingly obvious to everybody that I speak to, the medics, the academics, the researchers, that this is what's happening. Why is it? that those public health messages are not being shouted loud from every rooftop, just cut the sugar. Oh, I'll tell you why. Because Go on. The food industry, because the food industry has a louder megaphone and a much bigger pocketbook. And that is- Is it really coming down to that? And that is absolutely true in the UK. And, you know, we can name names here. You know, let's, let's start with Public Health England, you know, and where they get their money from. So, you know, we know what's going on. And the problem is that, um, you know, uh, there has to be a groundswell of public uh, an, uh, 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 antipathy and, and, uh, and uh, support for trying to fix this problem. And we're still not quite there yet. We're getting there. Yeah, and we've had some very brave medics. I, I podcasted recently with Dr. Seema Holtra, the cardiologist. Yes. And, Good friend. Uh, you know. Yeah, he, I mean, a great guy. The, the, the research that he's doing in all sorts of areas from statins to, to sugar is, is, uh, is outstanding and not prepared to call it out. I mean, that, that's what we need, isn't it? People who will call it out. And what's the history behind this? How, how has it been allowed to happen? Because clearly, you know, I'm not an academic. I'm not a medic. If I can see it and you know, other people can see it, people working in this area, how have we got to this stage? Well, it, it goes back a long way. You know, this didn't just happen. Um, the uh, food industry, like the tobacco industry, like the petroleum industry, like the opioid industry, have been obfuscating the science and have been paying off uh, politicians to, you know, basically do their work uh, for many, many years. We have data going back to 1943 about the Sugar Association in the United States. My, really, this broke open for me in 2016 when my colleagues here at UCSF, Kristen Carnes, Laura Schmidt, and Stan Glantz, um, uncovered the paper trail from the Sugar Association to the two heads of the Harvard School of Public Health Department of Nutrition, Fred Stair and Mark Hegstead, to produce two literature reviews on heart disease in the New England Journal of Medicine, figuring saturated fat as the bad guy and exonerating sugar. And they were paid in today's you know, dollars, $50,000 worth to produce these two um, uh, uh, treatises. And the uh, role of the Sugar Association in this, not just in terms of the funding, but in terms of the vetting and in terms of the um, uh, providing papers for support was never disclosed. So this has a long history of, um, shall we say, academic subterfuge. And, you know, 
the whole world believed saturated fat was bad because these two guys at Harvard School of Public Health said so. And you've got people like Axel Keys going back with the, the, the original research, you know, vilifying saturated fats. And, and that I mean, that is beginning to unravel. But, you know, you're making really bold statements there. I mean, do you do you have to watch your back? You can't be very popular to call out things like this. Well, I'm not very popular, but I'm not really that worried about watching my back, at least not anymore. Um, you know, this was an issue for my colleagues, especially uh, Laura Schmidt, who actually got death threats for um, uh, back in 2012 when our nature comment, the toxic truth about sugar, was first released. Um, but that has some, somewhat died down. And part of the reason it's died down is because the food industry recognizes the jig is up. And so they are now looking for other modes of um, sweetening uh, other than sugar. Um, you may have seen just recently an article in the, in the Sunday Times on you know the, uh, the the search for diet sweeteners, you know, and it's being undertaken by sugar companies. So they know, they know that we know, and so they're now on on it. The point is that um, I'm not that worried about my personal welfare. I am very worried about the welfare of society because we are not doing very well. Well, hopefully the, the, the tide will begin to turn. I mean, your, your latest book, Metabolical, I have to say, I absolutely love that title, Metabolical. I mean, it just says it all, doesn't it? Well, it's a, it's a portmanteau, you know, metabolic, the, yeah. the workings of the body and diabolical, yeah. the workings of big food, big pharma and big government. Yeah. And in that, you know, you you very much argue that it's not so much what's in our food. I mean, obviously talking about the sugars, but what's been done to our food. So would you like to talk us through what has been done to it? Because it's not just the fact that it's full of sugar, is it? Well, it's it's a bunch of things. Um, but yes, in the book, I basically say it's about the food processing. All food is inherently good. All food worked until it didn't. Okay. And right. when it didn't is when we started futzing with the food, as it were. Okay, uh, really in the 20th century, we started food processing. It started with the addition of trans fats back in 1910 to 1920. Crisco was the first you know, commercially available trans fat, and it found its way into all baked goods. Um, uh, we started removing fiber after the Dust Bowl and the Depression where we, in America, where we had a destitute population in the American Southwest and we had all of the food manufacturing plants in the Northeast. We had to get the food from the Northeast to the Southwest. Problem is, if you just put the food on railroad cars, it would be rancid by the time it arrived. So what did they do? They processed it. They basically removed the fiber, put it into 10 pound bags, shipped it across the country, baked it up um, you know, uh, on site. And we basically saved a population and, you know, we subsidized the food industry to do so because it made sense to do that back then. And it actually made sense all the way through World War II, and I don't argue that. But after World War II, that, the reason for that policy went away. We didn't need that policy anymore. But the food industry figured out, hey, we can make money at this. You know, We have turned food into commodities because commodities are storable food. And when, you know, commodities don't go bad, you can sell them. 
on the commodities exchange and you can speculate and you can like make money. And so instead of rescinding those policies of the Dust Bowl in World War II, we doubled down and we basically went whole hog into food processing. And then in 1971, Richard Nixon, uh, in his, uh, in, to, in continuing the war on poverty um, uh, that Johnson started, uh, realized that fluctuating food prices cause political unrest. And he had a whole lot of political unrest to deal with, called Vietnam. And so what did he do? He told his agriculture secretary, Earl Rusty Butts, love that name, Rusty Butts. <laughs> to make food cheap. And so Butts went to the heartland, to Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, and he said three things, three things. He said, row to row, furrow to furrow, get bigger, get out. That's what he said. And that started monoculture. Up to that point, we had family farms and the cows and the you know, crops all lived on the same farm and the cows fertilized the crops and the crops fed the cows and all was right with the world. But now we moved, then we moved the cows to Kansas to increase productivity, increase efficiency, right? And so now the cows didn't have you know, the crops to eat so they got shipped in corn that was then now grown in Iowa. And in order to uh, make the corn grow, since there was no fertilizer, since the cows had been removed, now they had to be sprayed with ammonium nitrate fertilizer, which caused nitrous oxide, which causes global warming. All right? And the cows are now eating corn and are now deficient in all sorts of nutrients, started getting sick. And so they had to be pumped full of antibiotics because they're lying in their own excrement on these concentrated animal feeding operations. So now we have antibiotics in the meat, okay? And we have nitrogen being sprayed on the corn, okay? And now we have, you know, basically a, a, a destroyed microbiome, chronic metabolic disease, and climate change, all in the name of profit. So that's why I had to write metabolical, is to tie the medical, you know, the health part with the financial and, and environmental part. And for, for people to realize, these are not three separate problems. These are one problem. That is really interesting. I haven't heard it explained quite so clearly and so succinctly that, that the joining together of those dots. And, you know, there is a movement here, certainly in, in the UK, a small one, albeit of back to regenerative agriculture, you know, proper 360 farming, taking away this intensive agriculture. But unfortunately, you know, we do have subsidy systems and there is a huge, obviously a hugely profitable industry or industries set up from farmer to food to, to fast food to processed food. It, I mean, it is going to take a little bit of unraveling. When we talk about processed food, can you explain the difference between processed food and what we're now talking about or what we're near hearing more about here in the UK, ultra processed food? Do you draw a distinction between the two? Right. So there are four levels of processing, if you will. And the easiest way to explain this would be an apple, <laughs> okay? So my colleague, Dr. Carlos Montero at uh, uh, University of Sao Paulo in Brazil came up with this classification called the NOVA classification. And the easiest way to explain the four classes of the NOVA classification are with an apple. So an apple, you know, picked off a tree 
that would be class one, unprocessed. Class two would be apple slices in a bag. So it's still apple, but it's been deseeded. Okay, it's still an apple, but it's not an apple apple, if you will. Okay, and because something's been done to it, it now has a food label. Whereas the apple did not need a food label because nothing had been done to it. So as soon as you see a food label, a nutrition facts label, you know something's been done to the food. The question is what and how severe. The third level would be, say, apple juice. So you've basically destroyed the entire fiber matrix in a, in a Breville or a Vitamix or you know whatever you know juice-making uh, process they used. You've gotten rid of the fiber, so now the sugar is available. They haven't necessarily added extra sugar. That would make it an orange drink instead of an orange juice. I'm uh, sorry, an apple drink. Sorry, I went from oranges to apples, and I didn't mean to mix my apples and oranges. Uh, <laughs> um, it, that would be an apple drink rather than apple juice, but the fact is that because the fiber has been destroyed and removed, that now is much more metabolically unhealthy. And then finally, the class four would be an apple pie. All right. So, you know, you start over here with an apple and you get all the way over here to an apple pie and they have four different levels of metabolic derangement based on what's happened to it. And what we've learned is it's that class four, that ultra processed group where basically nutrients have been removed, other nutrients have been added, that that's the one that predicts, correlates with and predicts chronic metabolic disease going forward and mortality and cancer for that matter. And Dr. Montero has demonstrated all of these in various populations throughout Europe and South America. And we're starting to look at that in the United States as well. So it is this ultra-processed food category that's the problem. But that is 56% of all of the food sold in America and 52% of all the food sold in the UK. Gosh, over half, ultra-processed. Can we talk a little bit about this term metabolic health? We're, we're hearing metabolic syndrome, metabolic disorders talked about in the UK, particularly recently in relation to covid as being a, a higher risk factor. Those who tend to, to suffer badly with COVID seem to be those suffering from metabolic disorders. What is the definition for a medic of, of a metabolic disease? So, very good question. Um, so there are these diseases that are associated with obesity, and I will list them for you. There are eight of them. Type two diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease. These eight constitute 75% of all healthcare dollars in America and in England, just almost the same because you guys are just like us and eat like us too. Um, that Those diseases are actually not diseases. They are symptoms of the primary pathologies that are belying and underneath those diseases. And if you think about those diseases that I just mentioned, none of them have a cure. They all have treatments like 
heart disease has statins and, you know, diabetes has, you know, oral hypoglycemics or insulin and hypertension has antihypertensives. But in fact, those medicines are not treating the disease. They are treating the symptoms of the disease. The so it's disease, controlling rather than a cure. Right. The disease is still there. You're papering over the symptoms. It would be like giving an aspirin to a patient with a brain tumor because they have a headache. Might help the headache. Ain't going to do a damn thing for the brain tumor. And that's the point. These eight diseases that I just called out, these are the diseases that doctors bill for. These are the diseases that have ICD-11 codes. Right? This is how doctors make money. But in fact, we are not actually fixing any of those diseases. And the reason is because the pathologies that cause those diseases are not being dealt with at all. And it is those pathologies that are actually driving all of this um, you know, healthcare expenditure and why lifespan in America continues to decline despite the fact that we spend more and more. So in the book, I describe the pathologies that are actually going on underneath inside the cell. I will name them very quickly. We're not going to spend any time with them. But what you will see is that none of them have ICD-11 codes. None of them are discussed with, uh, by your doctor with you. Okay? And the reason is because the doctor doesn't even know what they are and doesn't know how to fix them, even if he did know what they were, because there's no pill for them. And here they are. Glycation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, insulin resistance, membrane instability, inflammation, methylation, and autophagy. Now, when was the last time your doctor talked to you about any of those eight? But those yeah, are the I eight mean, things that are killing you. Yeah, and it's fascinating how we're beginning to hear, I'm beginning to become aware of words like methylation, and obviously you know, inflammation we, we've been aware of for a while. So these codes that you talk about, I'm not sure that we have those in the UK. Are they kind of the, the billing codes? Those, that, those that, are the, the billing uh, codes the, for the insurance company. So that's what the, funds the American healthcare that's system, right. basically. That, that, that's okay. what fun, funds sick care, are those codes. Sick care, you call it, that's not right. health care. We call it sick care, because <laughs> there's nothing healthy about it. So how do we then get this message across? And what do we do to, to assess those eight issues that presumably are treatable, but not with conventional pharmaceuticals. Right. So when you get right down to it, okay, and I do this in the book, and I've done this in scientific papers as well, every single one of those eight that I just mentioned, which I call the hateful eight, are actually due to mitochondrial dysfunction. Chronic disease is the disease of mitochondria, the disease of energy utilization, the disease of energy deposition, the energy, the, the diseases of energy disposition. Basically, your mitochondria are fragile. They, they become dysfunctional easily. They die easily. And they don't necessarily multiply like you want them to. And there are things you can do to try to, shall we say, improve mitochondrial function. And they're all food. None of them are medicines. In fact, medicines can't get to the mitochondria. The mitochondria won't let them in. So basically, your mitochondria are on their own. 
In fact, mitochondria are actually refurbished bacteria. We, we went into symbiosis with bacteria and the bacteria because they have their own DNA, mitochondria, and the DNA is bacterial DNA. So we actually host our mitochondria. And so our mitochondria are actually separate from us. And so when we take medicines to try to fix ourselves, we're not doing anything for our mitochondria. And so these little energy burning factories go on on their own. But the problem is they are easily, dis become, they become easily dysfunctional. And we are not doing anything to help them. We only make them worse. Like for instance, statins. Statins make mitochondria worse, which is why statins are associated with an increase in diabetes rates. You have a 20% chance of developing diabetes if you use a statin, right? So we're not touching the problem. None of these eight pathologies are druggable, but they're all foodable. And that's the point I make in the book as to how to do that. And we can't do it with our current ultra-processed food diet. We're only making our mitochondria sicker and sicker. And so we get sicker and sicker. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So in a nutshell, just so I've understood this correctly, the mitochondria are little bits that live in our cells throughout the body and have their own operating system, if you like. That's right. That's right. And are we born? Are we born with a, with a set number of mitochondria? Do they multiply? Do we do we need more or, or or less of them? Oh, we need as many as we can get. The problem. Do we? Okay. Yes, but the question is, what are the the uh, impetuses for making more mitochondria? Well, exercise is one. That's why exercise is good, is because it helps make mitochondria. But there are other things that improve mitochondrial uh, biogenesis and health and function, as well as exercise. 
um, has to do with what kind of fatty acids you take in because the mitochondria are made of fatty acids. The structure of them are fatty acids. Well, if you don't take the right ones in, and, you know, they're a whole bunch of fatty acids. And if you don't eat the right ones, you know what? You're going to have dysfunctional mitochondria. The ones that are the most important for mitochondria are omega-3s. Well, how many omega-3s you got in your diet? So if you're in Britain, maybe you eat some fish. But you know what? If you live in the middle of America, there's a really good chance you don't eat any fish. So where are you going to get your omega-3s from? It's, uh, I mean, I, I talk a lot about omega-3s. I'm, I'm a big, big fan. In fact, my first book published 30 years ago was Vital Oils, which was all about omega-3s, EPA, DHA in, in particular. And we're hearing more now about the importance not only of omega-3s, but decreasing the amount of omega-6s and, and the seed oils. Can we talk about the inflammatory nature of seed oils? What, what do you have to say about seed oils, things like corn oil and sunflower and safflower? Absolutely. So... Um, we have um, uh, anti-inflammatory effects of DHA and EPA, as you said, appropriately so. We have pro-inflammatory effects of omega-6 fatty acids. Omega-6 fatty acids are the precursors of a specific um, acid in our cells called arachidonic acid. And arachidonic acid goes on to develop prostaglandins, leukotrienes, the, the um, purveyors of inflammation. So omega-6s drive the process of inflammation. Now, you need omega-3s for neurotransmission and for mitochondria. You need omega-6s because you need inflammation. Because if you didn't have inflammation, you'd be eaten by the maggots. I mean, you know, you would have an immune deficiency. Nice. You wouldn't be able to survive. You, you, know, you know, you'd be septic. So you need both, but you don't need so much inflammation. And the problem is we should be consuming an omega-3 to omega-6 ratio of about one to one. And right now, the omega-6s, because of seed oils, so over-dominate our omega-3s, basically 20 to one or 25 to one. And so we basically eat a pro-inflammatory diet because we're not taking in any of the anti-inflammatory uh, 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 fatty acids, and we're taking in a whole bunch of pro-inflammatory fatty acids. And this is part of ultra-processed foods also because seed oils are cheap. Yeah. How then do we feed these good guys? How, how do we create more mitochondria and look after these little warriors through our diet? <laughs> so, number one, don't overload them. So what overloads mitochondria? Seed oils and sugars, I guess. Sugar, sugar in particular. Well, so my, seed oils make, you know, bad mitochondria, you know, dysfunctional mitochondria. And sugar, the fructose molecule, the molecule that's sweet, the molecule we crave, the molecule that's addictive, oh, I have a horrible sweet tooth, that's sugar addiction until proven otherwise. That fructose molecule that makes that, you know, uh, chocolate chip cookie, you know, taste so indescribably delicious, that is three mitochondrial toxins in one. Oh my goodness. Fructose inhibits three, count them, three separate enzymes that are necessary for normal mitochondrial function. It inhibits AMP kinase, which is kind of like the fuel gauge on the, liver, on the liver cell that basically tells mitochondria to be made, 
involved in mitochondrial biogenesis. It inhibits ACAD-L, acyl-CoA dehydrogenase long chain, which is the first enzyme on cutting up fatty acids into two carbon fragments for fatty acid oxidation to burn for ATP generation. And finally, it inhibits CPT1, carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, which is the enzyme that regenerates the shuttle mechanism that gets the fatty acids into the mitochondria for burning in the first place. The whole goal of mitochondria is to make ATP, right? And sugar is inhibiting ATP generation. Okay, so that, that's, that's a simplified version that I can remember. Sugar is inhibiting my ATP generation. That's right. Now, the problem is the food industry says you need sugar to live. Sugar is energy. No, it isn't. In fact, it is the opposite. It saps your energy. It is a mitochondrial poison. Well, people associate here particularly fructose with relatively good things like fruit. The reason fruit is okay is because the fruit has the fiber. And so when you consume, first of all, any one piece of fruit has actually relatively small amounts of fructose, not a lot, right? And it has an overwhelming amount of fiber. That fiber that was stripped out, you know, when you made the apple juice or the apple pie, that fiber protected your body because what it did was it set up a gel on the inside of your intestine. The insoluble fiber, the stringy stuff in celery, the cellulose, is like a latticework, like a fishnet. And the soluble fiber, like the pectins or the inulin, they're globular. They plug the holes in the fishnet. Together, they form a gel on the inside of the intestine that prevents sugars from being absorbed early on so they don't go to your liver and cause liver dysfunction. And because they don't get absorbed early, they go further down the intestine and the intestinal bacteria, which are in the jejunum, the next part of the intestine, they chew it up for their own purposes. So when you eat your fructose and fruit, you didn't even get the fructose. You fed your bacteria because the fiber made sure that you were protected from it. You consumed the poison, but you consumed the antidote with it. And so you actually fed your bacteria instead of feeding you. But when you strip the fiber out, now you got the poison. Okay. So apples good, apple juice bad. That's right. Apples good, apple juice bad. Now, the fruit industry doesn't want to tell you that. Because then what are they going to do with all those apples that are going to sit and rot? And it's just the farmer then just selling you apples that there is no processing. That's exactly right. Now, you've also written in your book about calories and busting the calorie myth, the, the, the myth that a calorie is a calorie and it doesn't really matter where it comes from. Let, let's talk about that because so many people here in the UK still very much rely on calorie counting as a way to slim. And we have to get rid of that. That has to go out the window. Ultimately, a calorie is not a calorie, right? Different calories from different foods do different things. It is true that a calorie is a unit of physics. It is that amount of energy that will raise one gram of water one degree centigrade. In that respect, a calorie is a calorie because as a unit of physics, that is correct. So a calorie burned is a calorie burned. That is true. But a calorie eaten is not a calorie eaten. 
for the reasons I just explained to you, because if you consume that calorie with fiber, you didn't absorb it. It was for your microbiome. So even though it passed your lips and registered as a calorie here, if it didn't pass your intestine, then it wasn't a calorie there. So a calorie is not a calorie because if it was consumed with fiber, that calorie wasn't for you. It was for your bacteria. So why are you counting? <laughs> All right. In addition, yeah, I mean, protein. So in order to turn a protein into energy, it takes twice as much energy to put in as it does for a carbohydrate to get turned into energy. So there's a net deficit because it takes more energy to turn a, an amino acid into ATP than a carbohydrate into ATP. So calorie is not a calorie because protein become, is relatively inefficient. So protein actually throws off more heat than does a carbohydrate. So a calorie is not a calorie because if it came from a protein, it's less likely to make you obese than if it came from a carbohydrate. And also the carbohydrate is going to ge generate an insulin response and the protein is not. All right, fats. So over here, we got omega-3s, heart healthy, save your life. Over here, we got trans fats, the devil incarnate. They will both, you know, consumable poison, kill you, all right? They're both nine calories per gram. One will save your life, one will kill you. Because a calorie is not a calorie. And then finally, fructose and glucose. And fructose drives, you know, liver fat. It drives the aging reaction. It drives addiction. And it is a mitochondrial toxin. Glucose is not. So a calorie is not a calorie at any level. But the food industry doesn't want to tell you that because if they actually admitted calorie is not a calorie, then they'd have to answer for, well, what calories did you put in your food? And they don't yeah, want you. What to kind? Is glucose good then if, if fructose is the baddie? Well, glucose makes your insulin go up. So I'm not going to say that glucose is good. But compared to fructose, it's a friggin' walk in the park. <laughs> right? Okay. Glucose, glucose still generates an insulin response. All right. But glucose is a, you know, it, it is burnable by any tissue in the body. Any cell in the body can burn glucose for energy. That's not true for fructose. Only the liver can burn fructose for energy. Now, the uh, industry says, well, you need sugar to live. No, you need a blood glucose to live. The question is, do you have to consume glucose to maintain a blood glucose? And the answer is no, you don't. Right. So we do not need to go out and buy glucose energy drinks. Absolutely not. We do not need to. Okay. Do that. All right. In fact, that's one of the problems is those energy drinks that, you know, and by the way, glucose energy drinks taste lousy. That was what the original Gatorade was until they added high fructose corn syrup to it in 1992. Okay. In order to sell it, you know, when Pepsi bought it from Stokely's. Um, the bottom line is that, yes, it is true. You need a blood glucose to live. You do not need to consume glucose to live because Amino acids and fats will get turned into glucose in your liver. It's a process called gluconeogenesis. So the, 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 the uh, industry subterfuge that carbohydrate is good for you and is ready energy is immediately bustable when you understand the science. 
So what kind of diet then does the Lustig household follow? Are you guys all on low carb, high fat? We hear so much about paleo, vegan, keto. What, 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 what do you guys eat? We eat real food. That's what we eat. <laughs> Cook from we scratch. We eat real food. We go to farmer's markets. Okay, when we go, you know, the, we, we spend a lot of time in the produce section, but we also spend a lot of time in the, the meat and chicken and, you know, uh, dairy section too. In other words, we shop the outside of the supermarket because that's where the real food is. If you've gone into the shelves, you've gone off the rails because that's where the processed food is. Okay, into the shelves and off the rails. That's that's a good one. What do you think about things like keto and you know high fat, low carb, or ultra low carb? There's, I'm 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 not for a keto diet. I'm not against a keto diet. Keto diet works. Okay. We used it in patients when we needed to based on their insulin responses. We basically targeted patients based on their insulin responses as to who needed a very low-carb or ketogenic diet. And there were certain patients who absolutely did. And those patients responded very well to that diet. All right. The point is that a ketogenic diet works for two reasons. One, it keeps the insulin down, which is good. It's all about keeping the insulin down. So that's why a ketogenic diet is good, is because it keeps the insulin down. But you know what? A high-fiber diet will keep the insulin down too. Now, ketones, beta-hydroxybutyrate is the primary ketone, is also a signaling molecule. And you asked me before, what stimulates mitochondria? Well, beta-hydroxybutyrate activates sirtuins, and sirtuins increase mitochondria. So that's a way of getting your mitochondria up. So that is why a ketogenic diet is good. And for those people who need more mitochondria, then that would be a way to do it. And so, like I said, I'm not against it. I'm for it for the right patient. Right? But I'm also for a vegan diet if you do it right. A what a diet? A vegan diet. You know, okay. mostly yeah. plant diet, right? Yeah. The reason is because if you're eating it mostly plants, you're not getting very much in the way of um, un, unprocessed, uh, sorry, in, uh, of processed carbohydrate. You're getting all unprocessed carbohydrate. Unless you're eating, you know, drinking Coca-Cola and eating uh, Doritos and Oreos. Those are vegan. So processed carbohydrate is vegan. And that's what kills you. So yeah, so it, it it is the processing, isn't it? What you're saying, it's the stuff out of the packets, the boxes with the long shelf life. Exactly. It's not the, the ketos and the vegans should actually be on the same side, because what they're both trying to do is they're trying to get insulin down, and I couldn't agree more. That is where the ketos and the vegans actually meet is get the insulin down. And I am totally for getting the insulin down, no matter what, All right? A low insulin diet, that's what we need. So whatever regime you follow, it's just getting the sugars out. Is it really that simple? Just looking at the, the grams of sugars and watching all those oses, the fructose it's, it's and refined, sucrose. And... It's refined carbohydrate and sugar together. It's both. Right. 
Okay. Okay. After that. And for those with a high cholesterol, will that have an impact? I know a lot of people do worry that if they, you know, go low sugar and, and higher fat, potentially, that they're going to have an adverse effect on their cholesterol. So it will have an effect on your LDL. Higher fat will raise your LDL. And I don't argue that. That is true. That's been true since we started measuring LDL. But there is not one LDL. There are two. Okay, there's one called large buoyant, and there's one called small dense. Now, dietary fat raises your large buoyant. I don't argue that. That was true then, it's true now. But it turns out that large buoyant LDL is not the heart disease driver. The other one is small dense. And it turns out small dense goes up with carbohydrate. And it also it's also true that statins lower your LDL. It lowers your large buoyant LDL. It doesn't do a damn thing. No, to the ones that you want. I think people find this hard to get their heads around after so much indoctrination that the sugars are impacting the bad form of cholesterol, raising heart disease. Because it's it's so obvious, and you know, it seems so obvious, doesn't it? Well, if I eat fat, I create more fat. But I get fat around the heart. I die of heart that's disease. The you know, that yeah. is the mistake. Yeah. Fat makes you work fat. Like fat contributes to fat in your arteries. That is the mistake. Now, it sounds good on a bumper sticker. It sounds good as a slogan. But there is no scientific evidence to support it. And there's no empiric evidence that a low-fat diet actually makes a difference in terms of morbidity or mortality. If anything, it actually is the opposite. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've recorded podcasts here with Zoe Harkham, Dr. Zoe Harkham. You may have come across her with, with, with her work on obesity, and, and, it, and it's exactly the same. She's a very good forensic analyzer I, I, of, of I'm data. I'm a big fan of Zoe Harkham, and she's looked at this, and so has Nina Teicholz and Gary Taubes, and how many other people? But, you know, the food industry does not want to hear this because, you know, real food is not what they sell. You have been very damning of modern medicine in the book uh, now and obviously in the past. What changes would you like to see if, if, if you could wave a wand? What would you be doing? In terms of modern medicine, the first thing I would do is I would require all doctors to undergo 12 hours of remedial nutritional education because most of them didn't get any nutrition in medical school in the first place. Only 28% of American medical schools even have a nutrition curriculum. And those that do have a total of a mean of 19.6 contact hours. Considering there are 6,000 contact hours in a medical education, okay, 19.6 contact hours for nutrition, which could solve 75% of all medical problems, seems like a very inadequate uh, 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 expenditure of time. Would you agree? I certainly would. That's where I would start. Doctors need to understand nutrition. They don't. They admit they don't. And yeah. they need to. And what we need to do is we need to fix the medical paradigm because right now, at least in the U.S., okay, doctors are paid for fixing sickness. They're not paid for keeping you healthy. And sadly, the NHS is, you know, I mean, it's supposed to keep you healthy, but you're doing a really, really lousy job of it. And you will continue to do a lousy job as long as half your food is ultra-processed. 
starting with the hospital vending machines. Yes. <laughs> so what is next for you now? I mean, this this book is brilliant and I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Are you, what, what's your next? Is it more of the same, basically? Well, you know, I have uh, a job to do, apparently, you know, I mean, okay. I, wish I didn't, yeah. but I have a job to do. And um, I am clinically retired. I'm not doing patient care anymore because I realized I could take care of a million kids easier than I could take care of one, um, mm. you know, through policy. And, yeah. you know, my goal is to basically fix the problem any way I can. So that involves research, that involves policy, that involves uh, training other physicians, that involves um, uh, uh, litigation that involves actually working with the food industry to fix their food. We are working with an international food conglomerate in the Middle East to actually completely overhaul their portfolio. We will be removing 78% of the added sugar in their portfolio over the course of the next year to year and a half. That's astonishing. That's so forward thinking and that's so encouraging with all this doom and gloom that's around us on every level to think that there are forward thinking big conglomerates that can actually make a, a global difference there. Well, this this conglomerate, number one, is privately held so they can take the long view. They don't have to worry about their stock price because they don't have a stock price. And number two, they are committed because they have forward thinking people at the helm. So it can be done. But it can't be done, um, you know, when, when Wall Street is, you know, the taskmaster. Tell us how we can find out more about you and follow you and support you and just engage with this. Well, um, I have a website, robertlustig.com. You can go to metabolical.com, uh, which, uh, you know, is in support of the, the book. The book goes right there. There it is. Okay. At least this is the American version. There's a British version, of course. Uh, by Yellow Kite in uh, uh, um, uh, Hotter uh, and um, uh, uh, Hachette, uh, UK. And um, there's on, on, on your website, I've noticed you've got a really interesting sugar project. We have something called the Sugar Matrix. We're the Sugar Matrix. We're gathering. Let's just touch on that briefly because that, that's fascinating, that research. We are gathering all the information that the food industry uses to hide sugar in its foods. Did you know there are 262 names for sugar? I knew there were a lot, but I did not know it was 262. That, wow. And that's on purpose. Because <laughs> they can hide it in plain Talk sight. Talk about obfuscation. I mean, really. They can hide it in plain sight. So, so the aim of the sugar matrix is to unravel that, is it? Absolutely. The point is, you can't scan a, uh, a nutrition facts label and find all this stuff. But a computer could. And so we are working with a company called Perfect to be able to analyze any food label in any store and basically transmit that information to your app so you actually know what to buy. Fascinating. Dr. Lustig, it's so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your time. I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to this, I think, several times with a notepad and pencil. And it's a terrific learning curve. We're very grateful that you were here today. Thank you been my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Well, fascinating stuff as always. And that is it for today's episode. Huge thanks to Dr. Robert Lustig. And as always, you will find all the links and the resources mentioned over on lizalwellbeing.com. There you can sign up for the free weekly newsletter filled with the latest developments and more in the world of well-being. Huge thanks to all of you who have left us such lovely reviews, especially on iTunes. It really does help others to find the show and we are extremely grateful. Thank you. And until the next time, go well. Bye-bye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, with production by Amaryllis Earl and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue, with thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, and guest booker, Millie de la Morinière. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.